Would you pray with me? Father, as we uh, just come to your word now, uh, my prayer this morning is along the lines of the words of the Apostle Paul when he came to the uh, church there at, uh, at Corinth and he said, you know, I didn't come to you with wise and eloquent and, you know, great human words, but instead I came uh, among you with humble heart and with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Lord, this morning we pray that your Spirit's power would be very much evident in this place today. Lord, that uh, the words that are spoken from my lips, the words that are received by our ears and our hearts, will indeed be empowered by the Spirit of God to produce that which you intend to produce in us, and that is Christ-likeness. We pray today, Lord, that uh, here in this place, that we would be very much aware of your power and your glory and your majesty displayed through your word and through the preaching of it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, folk who um, are uh, familiar with the English language will know that there are, quite, there are words in the English language which are called onomatopoeic words. You know those? Yes, you've heard of those before. These words are words basically that mimic the sounds of the words that they're actually, or the things that they're actually describing or talking about. For instance, the word buzz is one of those onomatopoeic words. And I'm going to get myself in a tongue twist here in a minute. All right, buzz. Because it, uh, it, it speaks, it very much speaks of, of what it's describing, that, that buzz of the bee and that sort of thing. Or the word whisper. That's another one. Or the word boom. Okay, those sorts of words are what we call automatic payout words because they, you know, you know automatically when the word sort of sounds out, you know, it sort of just speaks exactly of what it's, what it's talking about, what it's describing. And we come this morning to one of those words in our passage and it's the word grumble. Grumble. I can't get deep enough. Grumble. Yes, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yes, where we get and mutter under our breath. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, you ever, ever been like that? Meet Mr. Grumble. Would you put it up? Thanks, Rob. I forgot the clicker this morning, mate. Meet Mr. Grumble. Now, I think that we have all, at one time or another, come across a Mr. Grumble, haven't we? Yeah. Or perhaps a Mrs. Grumble or a Miss Grumble. Yes? I think, uh, dare I say it, that at one time or another, we ourselves have been a Mr. Grumble or a Mrs. Grumble or a Miss Grumble. Last Sunday we were looking at uh, the, the verses, uh, seven, verses 7 and 8 of, of James chapter 5 and we were uh, looking at the fact that there were this, this emphasis on being patient. Thanks, Rob. On being patient. Situations arise in our lives. They, they, we, we encounter them in our lives where injustice just seems to prevail, doesn't it? Where, where we see that the people who are just intent on doing the wrong thing or evil things, they just do it and they seem to get away with it. In fact, sometimes they can even benefit from it and kind of use it to kind of get ahead and trample over those, you know, around them. They just don't care about them. And, you know, those, those innocent kind of people who just, you know, happen just to be in the way of these people just wanting to get to that which they want to have for themselves. And I, I feel, don't know you, but, but we, we can find it maddening, can't we? When, when those sorts of things happen, we find it so maddening, and especially if we ourselves are the innocent victim. 
The temptation then, of course, is to do all within our power to want to get back at those people, to want to seek vengeance and to seek proper justice, you know, in the situation, to make those people or that person pay for their wrongdoing, pay for the way in which they have caused us hurt and harm and suffering. For those of you who were here last week, I used the illustration. It was, uh, I guess, just a, um, a simple illustration of those people who emerge, emerge lanes down there at, at, at Rothwell. You know where they've got the, the roadworks down near the, uh, the Woolworth service station down there and how sometimes they've got the cones out and the, the, the lanes have got to merge from two lanes down into one. And, you know, there are those drivers, I said last week, who like to, you know, after all, everyone else is sort of trying to, you know, merge the cross. They see what's coming up. They'll go right to the very end of the, of the line, right up to almost the witch's hats to get across or to push in at, at, at the front. And some drivers get really, really frustrated about that. And I was uh, shared with you last week about a fellow in a four-wheel drive who decided he was just going to straddle the middle line and he was going to stop anyone from getting past, either on the right or the left, until he got to right to the end of the uh, right to the uh, the merging point. Well, judging by some comments following my sermon last week, it seems that there we have a number of people in our church who are guilty of said going right to the end of the uh, <laughs> the merging. Hmm. Yes. In fact, there seemed to be a few confessions last week. Although some of them, some people said to me that in fact I was the one who was wrong and that uh, that was the way it was supposed to work, a bit like a zipper, I was told. <laughs> it's amazing how people will justify their actions, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> of course, you know, when it, when it comes to it, the, uh, you know, we get really, really irritated sometimes by these kind of behaviours, don't we? We get really, irrit- really irritated by it and and without wanting to condone the actions of those people who like to sort of go right to the front and, and push in, tongue in cheek, all right, this verse in, in verse 9 this morning has a word to say to those of us who get irritated by that kind of behaviour. It says, do not grumble. It's amazing how God will sort of, you know, just put his thumb on you when you, you know, you think you're in that kind of self-righteous position and uh, you think, you know, I'm, I'm in the right and these people are in the wrong and then God comes to you and says, you know what, do not grumble. Do not grumble about these said behaviours. Of course, the kind of response that James is talking about here is this, this kind of inner kind of uh, attitude or an inner kind of feeling or an emotion which, which sort of has got this inward kind of groan. You know that uh, when, when someone does the wrong thing and you've got that, that groan that, goes, that, that, that's, that, that sort of takes place in your heart? Have you ever had that happen? Yeah, when someone sort of just, you think, oh, or that sigh. Oh. You know, the roll of the eyes. Teenagers are really good at doing that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just single the teenagers out, should I? Because we as adults are uh, very guilty of doing that. As my wife pointed out to me on the couch the other night, yeah, there you go. All right, self-confession time. There you go. <laughs> yes, thanks, Bree. Of course, these kind of responses come with the displeasure that we feel about, you know, these kind of behaviours in our lives when we're wronged. And sometimes it goes then from an inward kind of expression to an outward complaint or a whinge about what these other people are doing to us and how bad they are. When I look in the Bible, I see that probably one of the classic examples of grumbling is, is the Old Testament Hebrew people, the people of God. And uh, we read that uh, you know, God had acted graciously on behalf of these people when they were enslaved, in slavery in Egypt. 
And God had, uh, had heard the cries of his people. They had been in, in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and they had been oppressed by the Egyptian people and made to work really, really hard, you know, sort of, you know, as, as building all of these great big, you know, building and constructions and things and, and making the bricks by hand and so forth. And they had just cried out to God, you know, in their slavery and in their hardship and in their oppression, in their oppression to be released from it. And God heard their cry. And God then used a man called Moses to uh, to go and confront Pharaoh, the, the ruler of Egypt, and say, you know what, Pharaoh, God wants you to let his people go. He wants you to let his people go and worship him in the, uh, in the wilderness. And Pharaoh would not give in. He would not budge. He was very much against letting God's people go. And so God sent plagues upon the land to try to convince Pharaoh, to try to soften his heart, to sort of see that God was this almighty, powerful God and that Pharaoh needed to, to submit himself to God's will and allow God's people to go. But Pharaoh just would not budge. His heart was so hard towards God, he just would not give an inch. And in the end, God had to send the final plague, the, fl- the plague of death over the firstborn in Egypt, right across the land. And there was just great you know, grief and wailing and, and sadness when, when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and all the firstborn, including Pharaoh's son, was killed. And so Pharaoh finally decided, well, I'm going to release him. Just get out of here. Just go and be gone. And so Moses led the people out. But as Pharaoh stewed on it for a little bit, he became angry. And so he rallied his army and he took off after the, after the Hebrew people and he cornered them between himself and the Red Sea. And we read in Exodus that God parted the sea and allowed the Hebrew people to walk across on dry land. But as the, the, uh, the uh, um, Egyptian forces, the Egyptian army followed the Israelites across, of course, God brought the sea back and, uh, and wiped them all out. Wonderful, powerful, saving acts of God on behalf of his people. And yet, we come to just a chapter later in Exodus and the people are there, they've been rescued and all of a sudden they're thirsty and they start to grumble. You know, why did you bring us out in this wilderness to die of thirst? You know, we would have been better off back in Egypt. Talk about ungrateful. I mean, they've been begging for 400 years to be released. God does amazing things, brings them out, and what do they do? They whinge and complain because they're thirsty. And God in his grace provides, miraculously provides water for them. And then a little bit later on, all of a sudden, the people are hungry. And so what do they do? They begin to grumble and whinge and complain and say, God, why did you bring us out here to starve to death? We would have been better off back in Egypt. And God said, and God in his grace and in his mercy provides food for his people every single day, both morning and evening. He provides food. And then when God finally brings his, his people to the promised land, the land that he promised that would be, that would be theirs, they go to the land, they send some spies into the land and they see that the land is, is inhabited by giants, by people who are just so um, strong and they're just so afraid. And so they grumble again. They go, to, they go to Moses and Aaron and they grumble and say, you know, why on earth have you brought us here? You know, we'll be killed if we go into this land. And this time God judges the people. And he says, all of this particular generation who would not trust me, who would not believe in me, who would not have that faith in me, you will be gone. You'll take you out into the wilderness and for 40 years you'll wander around there until that whole generation has died out. 
God had shown grace and mercy to his people. But there came a point where God said, enough is enough. And he said, I'm going to judge you for your grumbling. Now, the grumbling showed in those people's hearts that they truly just did not trust God. They did not love God. They did not have that proper faith that they should have had in God. And that's why God judged them for their sin. And that's why that whole generation was wiped out. All through their grumbling, we see that the people directed it mainly towards Moses and Aaron. But when we get to Exodus chapter 16 and verse 8, we are told that ultimately their grumbling was directed towards God. It was directed towards God. And ultimately, when it comes to us and our grumbling, we might think our grumbling is directed towards those around about us, but ultimately our grumbling is directed towards God, our Heavenly Father. And this is where we see our first reason this morning as to why we should not grumble, because ultimately our grumbling is evidence of our lack of faith and our lack of trust in our God, our Heavenly Father. To grumble is the opposite of being patient. James has been speaking about being patient, but to grumble is the opposite of that. It's the opposite. Last week we learned that patience is based on the truth and the reality of God's love, and particularly on Christ's second coming. When Christ will, at one point in in, in history, in, in some future point in time, and it might be in a very, very short period of time, it might be a very long period of time, but Christ is going to come back again. It is the last thing that needs to be fulfilled on God's prophetic calendar. On God's calendar of events that are planned out for the world, this is the last particular thing which God has got planned that has been revealed to us in Scripture, that Christ will return in majesty and glory to take all of his family, all of his children, to be home with him forever in heaven. And James focuses on that and he says, you know, although things in this world, they might not go our way. There might be things in this world which which cause us to struggle and cause us to suffer and and cause us great angst and and grief and, and, and difficulty. James says that Jesus is coming back and when he does, he is going to set all of these things right. He is going to set them all right. He is going to judge the earth, judge every single human being, because, on the basis of their actions and their behaviours. And he says that, uh, that he will judge in righteousness and truth. He will judge not just based on outward actions, but on a person's heart, on where that person's heart is and what has been, you know, what has been the fruit of their lives because of the condition of their hearts. And Revelation 21 reminds us that at that particular point in time when Jesus comes, when, when everything, when he, when he's going to set everything right, he says that at that point in time, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All of that suffering and all that hardship that has caused the pain and the tears, God is going to set right. He's going to wipe away those tears from our hearts, from our eyes. He's going to, he's going to do away with all of our mourning, with all of our crying, with all of our pain. Isn't that a great thing to look forward to? Isn't that a great hope that we as Christians have today that that despite all the things going on around us that there will be a point in time where Jesus will come again and he will set all things right. That he will make all of the bad stuff, he will judge it and he will judge it justly. And he will punish that which needs to be punished. 
His righteousness and his justice will reign forever and ever. And James uses the example of the farmer in terms of how we should be patient, in terms of you know, how the farmer you know, works hard to, you know, to do the planting and that sort of thing, but ultimately it's out of the farmer's hands as to whether or not the plant grows and whether or not it produces a crop. He's, got a dep- he's dependent upon the rain and that's completely out of his control. It's all in God's hands. And so we've got to trust God is what James is saying. The Old, Test- the Old Testament referred to the, the, old, the, the, sorry, the, late, the early and late rains in conjunction to God's faithfulness. It spoke about it in light of God's faithfulness, that God is the faithful God who brings these early rains and these late rains in order to bring about the crop, the precious fruit. Folks, God can be trusted God can be trusted with every single aspect of your life, with every single aspect of my life, with all of the things that you are going through in your life today. God can be trusted. He is faithful. His steadfast love towards us is guaranteed for those who love him, who have come to a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed. God can be trusted and we are to live in light of God's big picture of eternity. That there will be things in this earth which will be wrong and which will, we will look at it and we will wonder where on earth is the justice in that. But we've got to keep in mind that God himself will come one day and he will make everything right. He will judge justly. And we ourselves have got a responsibility to, to, to come before God and make sure that our sins have been fully dealt with in Jesus Christ. That is the, 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 uh, the, the, the responsibility of every single human being on this planet today to come before God in humility and repentance and confess our sin and our need for, our, for God's forgiveness for us in Jesus Christ. Him being the only one who can pay for our sins and put us into a right relationship with him. Grumbling is evidence of our lack of faith and trust in God. Not only does it affect our relationship with God, though, it affects our relationships with each other. For James writes, Do not grumble against one another, brothers. James is speaking here of the family of believers, the body of Christ, the church, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not just here in this place, but throughout the world. James says, do not grumble against one another. I don't know about you, but when things aren't going so well for us, when things are going particularly hard for us and difficult for us, then we can start, or we can begin to start looking around at those people around about us. Looking around at, the, at others. And see that, you know, some don't seem to be doing it as tough as us. Have you ever done that before? When things are going really hard for you, you look at other people around you and oh, I wish my life was like theirs. They don't seem to have any of the kind of hardship that, that, that I've got to go through. And then when you sort of start to go that, down that kind of line of, of thinking, then you sort of start to think, hmm, well, why is it that I'm suffering and they're not? Because I think I'm a better person than they are. You know, I do, I do a lot of good things for God and I don't see them, these people doing those kind of things. So we sort of start to look at the negatives. Why does such and such get it so easy, God? 
You know, they're guilty of doing this and that and other things, and I'm not guilty of doing any of those sorts of things. I'm a pretty good kind of person, Lord. In his book, The uh, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a demon called Screwtape and his nephew Wormwood. And it's Screwtape's job to mentor Wormwood, who to sort of show him all the tricks of the trade, if you like, and how to deceive human beings from following God and from, from believing in God. And, uh, and the trouble is, though, is that Wormwood's patient, his human being he's responsible for, has become a Christian. And, uh, and Screwtape is just, he's just flabbergasted. <laughs> he's a bit disappointed with Wormwood, and he says to him, he says, you know what, he says, you're going to be in trouble for this. You know, you're going to be in serious trouble for this. However, not all is not lost. All is not lost. He said, for in fact, you know, the fact that this Christian is starting to go to church may actually play in our favour, he says to Wormwood. Because he says, because in going to church, it might be helpful in undermining your patient's faith. There's a thing for you, isn't it? Mm. Why? Because he says... This is Screwtape's words to, to, uh, to Wormwood. He says, The way to approach this problem is this, is to keep the patient's attention on the faults and the foibles of his fellow Christians. To keep your patient's focus on the faults and the foibles of his fellow Christians. Because what happens then is that Regardless of whether those faults are real or imaginary, as long as they're perceived as faults by the patient, then they'll start to see, well, you know what? Maybe this Christianity isn't all as cracked up to be in the first place. You know, this, this place that I go to is filled with all of these people who I think are a lot worse than what I am. So what's the point? Why bother? You know, so-and-so you know, spoke nastily to me the other day. Well, that's not a Christian thing to do. You know, so and so, you know, over there, they, you know, they, uh, you know, did some horrible thing to, uh, you know, to, to another person in the church. That's not a Christian thing to do. Hmm. Maybe this Christianity thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Sadly, in our world today, there are many, many people who have, at one time or another, been in church and have focused on the faults and the weaknesses and the sin of the people around about them and got so disheartened and so discouraged by it that they instead have just walked away from the church and, and most importantly have walked away from God altogether. That, this is a plan and a ploy of our enemy. It is a plan and a ploy of his to get us to focus on all of the bad things that our Christian brothers and sisters do around us. And then for us to focus on those and start to get disheartened and start to get judgmental and critical and grumble and fight and then in the end say, oh, I've had enough of this, I'm out of here. James goes on to say, that we need to be careful about our grumbling. We need to be careful about grumbling against other believers because grumbling about them means that we are passing judgment on them. We're passing judgment on them and therefore we put ourselves in a position of, of a, I guess, of a, of a higher position than them and even it puts us in the position of God who alone is the one who is right to judge in this world. 
And not only that, James says that you yourself then put yourself in danger of being judged yourself. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So that you may not be judged. In the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, we read about a man who owed a great amount of debt to the king. In fact, this, this amount of money was probably equivalent to millions of dollars in our, in our language. And the king called him in because he wanted to settle the debt and say, you know what, you owe me this amount of money, pay up. Pay up or else I'm actually going to sell your wife and your children and all of your belongings and I'm going to throw you in jail until the debt is completely paid for. And the man is just so, um, you know, so struck with grief at that and he, and he gets down on his hands and his knees and he begs the king for mercy. He pleads, pleads for, his, for, for the king's mercy and says, God, I'll, I'll promise I will repay the money, but just don't do that. Don't sell my wife and my children and all my property. I promise I'll pay it back. And the king, in his great mercy, said to the man, I forgive you and I also forgive your debt. I forgive your debt. A huge debt. A debt that was most likely completely beyond this man's ability to repay it back. And then this man we see next, he goes outside of the palace. And as he's leaving the palace, he comes across this man who owes him a few dollars. And he grabs the man by the throat and he starts to choke him. And he says, pay up that money that you owe me or else. And the man says... You know, I promise I'll pay it back. I can't do it at the moment, though, but I promise I'll pay it back to you. Please just show mercy to me. And the man who's been forgiven much says, gets this man and he throws him in jail until he can repay the debt. And Jesus says at the end of that parable, he said, the king heard about the actions of this man and he gets him and he drags him back before him again. And he says, you know what? I showed you great mercy. You wouldn't even show a tiny bit of mercy to this this other person. And therefore, I am going to throw you in jail. And you'll stay there until the debt is repaid. And most likely he would have stayed there for the rest of his life. What Jesus is saying here is that When it comes to his followers, when it comes to his children, those who profess faith in him as as Lord and Saviour, we ourselves are to show mercy and forgiveness. We are to show grace and mercy and forgiveness in the way that God has shown grace and mercy and forgiveness to us. Because if we don't, God is going to hold us accountable for it. You will have to one day stand before God and give an account for why you, you, were, you didn't do that, why you refused to obey his words, his commands. God will want to know. He'll want an answer. We said before that when it comes down to it, every single one of us have a sin debt before God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 says that for all have sinned, every single person in living history, 
both in the past and whoever is to come, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Every single one of us. And because of that, all of us stand in a position of condemnation under God's righteous judgment. And we will be judged on the basis of our sin. But God in his mercy says, but I have, I have provided a way of being saved from my judgment. There is only one way that you can do this. And that is to come before Jesus Christ and admit your sin. Admit your need to, to, for, for God's forgiveness and grace to be shown to you. And, and recognize that Jesus, when he died on the cross, died in your place. He himself bore his, your wrath on him, bore your sin and God's wrath upon himself for your sin. But then he rose again in triumphant glory proving that he was the only one able to pay that debt to defeat sin and death and to provide new life in his name. It is the only way. Each of us have a sin debt before God and God has richly poured out his grace on us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, because we are just as sinful as those people around about us, as we sit here this morning in our pews here in the church, as we look around the room and we look at the different faces and the different people in our room, every single one of us are just as sinful as each other. When it comes before God, none of us can be able to sort of stand up on a platform or anything else above each other in this room and say that we are better than anyone else. None of us can. We are just as sinful as the next man. And therefore, we ourselves need to show grace the same way that God has shown grace to us in saving us. And folks, the more that we grasp this grace of God, the more that we grasp this mercy and and, and extent of forgiveness that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ, then the, the, the more freely we will be able to forgive and show grace to those around about us. If you're, a, if you're a person who is not particularly gracious, if you're a person who struggles to show forgiveness, who struggles to show you know, mercy to those around about it, maybe it's because you just have not yet understood the grace and the mercy that God has shown to you in Jesus Christ for your sin. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Judge not so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and yet fail to see the log that is in your own eye? See what Jesus is saying? Just to emphasise his point, James goes on to say, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He says, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. And behold, the judge, the righteous judge, the only judge is standing right on your doorstep. 
He's looking right over your shoulder. So as you take, you know, delight in judging those around about you, you do it with the judge standing right there knowing your guilt. How arrogant and how foolish is that? The judge is at hand. Folks, we're all in the same boat and every single one of us is relying upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, you and I know, we know, you know, in, in terms of ourselves, we know how, you know, the, our sin, don't we? We're just so aware of it. We know how sinful people, what, what sinful people we are. We know the sins we struggle with day after day after day, hour by hour. Yet God is patient with us. God's patient with us. We need to remember that that same kind of work that God is doing in, in, in each person's life here in this place and in the world who have come to saving faith in Jesus, that work of sanctification, of making us holy, of setting us apart, of making us more like Jesus Christ, that work that God is doing in each and every one of, 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 of these people's lives, of your lives, he's doing in my life. We are works in progress. We are not finished products yet. And so just as God is patient with us, we need to be patient with one another and don't grumble against each other. That's what James is saying here in this passage. It's simple, isn't it? Isn't it a simple message? And yet we make it so hard. So folks, let's be patient with one another. Let's remember that each of us is precious in God's sight and that God is in the midst of doing a work in our hearts and in our lives. Let's, yes, speak the truth to one another in love as we live this life together. Let's encourage each other in our walks of faith. Let's graciously draw alongside a fellow brother or sister in the Lord who seems maybe to wandering off the right path. But let's do it with love and concern for their well-being and not so that we can just feel better about ourselves. Yeah? The Apostle Paul says to the believers in Philippi, and I've got this on the front of your newsletters this week, he says, let's do all things. Let's go about living this Christian life. Let's go about our lives. Let's do all things without grumbling or disputing that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, by the Holy Spirit's help, with the Spirit of God's help in our lives, let us love one another. Let Let our love for one another and our humility towards one another be so evident in our relationships and in how we deal with each other. And may, with the Spirit's help, may that love and that humility prevent us from grumbling with each other, grumbling against each other and fighting with with each other. But instead show mercy and patience and forgiveness. And as we do that, that will be a great witness and a great testimony to to the people around about us who do not know God. What an attractive thing, hey, to see people showing grace and mercy towards each other, showing love towards each other when even they don't deserve it. What a testimony that will be about the truth and the reality of God's power and God's work you know, in your life. 
in our lives. Hey, don't you agree? Yeah. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that this morning that, Lord, we have all got this great tendency to want to grumble, to want to, you know, voice our displeasure and our and our our discomfort, our complaining and our whinging to those around about us. Lord, what we learn from your word today is that when we do that, Lord, not only is it you know not good for our, our relationship to those around about us, but it affects our relationship with you, Lord. And most of all, it's evidence in our own hearts that we just don't trust you. We, we just don't have enough faith in you to, uh, you know, to, to take care of us. Lord, we pray this morning as we've heard these words that, that we'll, we will just take them to heart. But Lord, that you would help us to be a, a body of people here in this place who truly show that grace and mercy and forgiveness towards each other. Lord, instead of grumbling against each other. And that, Lord, as we, as we, by the Spirit's help, do that, as we are patient with each other, as we, as we all recognise our own weaknesses and failings, Lord, help us to be thankful for the, for the grace that we've been shown in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness that is ours in him, and for the great knowledge of knowing that you are patient towards us and that you are working in our lives and that one day you will bring that work to a complete fruition where we will be perfect in your sight. Until that time, Lord, help us to look to you and to trust in you, to be obedient, to submit our will to yours. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.